Hello and welcome to Tamagundas. Now, Tamagundas quite literally means I wonder in Manx, and this is a show where we wonder about all sorts of things around the Isle of Man. And possibly beyond. We have a challenge, we have a dip into the archives, we see just what is out and about. So to start today's programme, H, I just want to ask you, have you ever heard of Sir Frank Gill? And if you have, don't give me a big explanation, I just Mm -hmm. want a yes or no. I think I have. Uh, I'll leave it there. Okay. Well, thinking you have isn't really good enough because this man was absolutely incredible. And I am ashamed to say I knew very little about him until I met Bob Stimson, who has written a book about him. And Bob is also the chair of the Isle of Man Victorian Society. This book is incredible. Keep listening. We have a copy of this book to give away. There will be a question at the end. But I've been talking to Bob Stimson to find out more about Sir Frank Gill. And in this interview, you're going to hear... A little bit from Sir Frank himself. I propose to consider the progress of measurement in telephone industry from personal memories during the last 60 years. He was born in a house which is now the co-op in Castletown and he went on to uh, move across to the UK to further his education and joined what was then called the United Telephone Company at the age of 16, and in his own words, has been down holes and up poles at the very early stages of the telephone industry in the UK. The high-frequency dynamo, the oscillograph and the valve came, and then at last telephony was able to get to grips on its electrical measurements. At that early stage, when he first started his training, switchboards in telephone companies were operated by young boys and uh, they quickly uh, abandoned the idea when they found that the uh, subscribers weren't getting the telephone connections they were expecting because the lads would bunk off to either smoke or play football (laughs) and it was one of Frank's uncles who actually introduced the practice of having lady telephonists because of their politeness and their manual dexterity and plugging the cables into the holes in the wall. Anyway, he went on to become a very senior member of the company and was responsible at one stage for all of Ireland. So he was the superintendent for the National Telephone Company for all of Ireland. And after he'd worked for a number of years in Dublin, he moved across to London and frequently visited America, which was the centre of the telephone industry worldwide because of they were so far ahead of everywhere else. And Alexander Graham Bell had put his patent in in America, not in England. So he had developed a skill and a reputation that even the Americans regarded this Manxman as the best telephone engineer outside America, and this was in 1900. He went on to uh, further his career, and he was the president-elect of the Institution of Electrical Engineers in 1922. And this is a period where uh, the very early wireless transmissions Uh, what we regard today as a radio program in 1922 were regarded as wireless telephony messages because it was still 
on the telephone emphasis, the technology and the terminology that we know today that Max Radio use and the BBC use of wireless or radio programmes, then it was a radio telephone message because it was conveying information only, not so not much entertainment. The post office had the exclusive right to grant licences for broadcasters to, to transmit these uh, programmes as we now know them. And in the 19, early 1920s, the post office were being inundated by requests from companies to grant them licences to broadcast. They decided that the uh, best way forwards was to invite the manufacturers of the equipment. In, in modern terms, the, uh, the wireless radio equipment manufacturers would be granted a license to broadcast and the income they had from the radio sets would fund the, the programmes. And the post office invited 48 manufacturers to meet together and they, the post office basically wanted somebody to arrange for the manufacturers to agree the way forward so it didn't compete and it basically took the emphasis off the post office and put it on the manufacturers. So these manufacturers asked Frank Gill to chair it because of his reputation and uh, his superb skills as a mediator and negotiator. So he was, he was considered an extremely capable man in the ni early 1920. He sat down with these manufacturers and they agreed to form a small group called the Big Six, which was basically six, and then the post office asked for a smaller manufacturer called Burn Depth to be added in. So the Big Six became the Big Six plus one. He then sat down with them for a couple of months and they thrashed out an arrangement. Initially, two, two of the big companies, Marconi, who's everybody's heard of today, and a company less known called uh, Metropolitan Vickers, wanted two separate organisations and the post office were willing to consider two organisations. Marconi and Metropolitan Vickers had different opinions on, basically they saw the market for radio stations and wanted to basically carve it up between them. And to cut a long story short, Frank Gill banged their heads together and said, you are going to form a single organisation. He also outlined the need for public accountability and the public service aspect of it. And it was he who drove Marconi and Metropolitan Vickers to bury their differences. The chief executive of Marconi then put together a proposal which was accepted by them all. And as soon as that single proposal had been formulated in enough detail to satisfy those concerned, Frank then stood down as the chairman of this committee because he had commitments to go to America to work with American Telegraph, which is AT&T, which is still going today. He stood down and Sir William Noble stepped in as as the chairman. And the minutes of this meeting, which are still on record at the BBC at Caversham, show that uh, Sir William Noble almost apologised to the committee by saying, I'm, I'm, the only reason I'm sitting here is because Frank has gone off to America to carry on his work there. So the single entity structure of the BBC that we know today is down to the negotiating skills and the mediating ability of one Manxman. Conjured up in sound and sight by the magic rays of light that bring to you. That is absolutely incredible. We've got your book just in front of us here, Sir Frank Gill, The Unique Story of a Manx Telecommunications Pioneer. 
And as we said right at the start of this, not somebody that most people will be very familiar with. And thank goodness we have this in in front Mm. of us, Bob, to to actually reflect just what a significant person he is. And um, a lot of detail on his early years as well. You mentioned the fact that he was uh, born in what is now the local co-op store in Castletown. Some wonderful Victorian photographs in here. I mean, a labour of love, I'm guessing, putting all this together? Yes, definitely was. I mean, my background, my interest is, is within with Manx Inventors, and I've got quite a collection of, of old documents that refer to those. Frank Gill was a remarkable Manxman, and from the records I found, he, he, he frequently referred to his Manx origins because the Institution of Electrical Engineers did a a film of him talking about quality control in a really exciting topic, but it does introduce him as the Manxman Frank Gill as their as their former president. Is that footage still available? Yes, it is. Yes, uh, you you can see it on the internet. He did amazing things in in the 1900s, 1912. He uh, provided the telephones used by Scott's Antarctic expedition. When they returned, he gave one to his daughter, who was a pupil at Cheltenham's Ladies College, and they still have it. And I was fortunate to talk to their archivist and got further details about Iris Gill, his daughter, uh, and this this remarkable piece of equipment. Uh, he later went on, literally a few months after the work with the BBC, uh, he did the very first uh, wireless telephone call between New York and London. He was at, he was at the London end, and the chief engineer of AT&T was in New York and they linked together and even had Marconi as one of the members of the audience in London. That's incredible, um, isn't so it? it? Absolutely remarkable. And then a couple of years later, he frequently visited America and then continued to work in a, something like 20 countries. And he, he received awards from the Japanese, the Spanish and the Chinese, uh, uh, awarded by their governments. And as is the requirement here, you have to have royal approval in, in Britain to wear a foreign award. And the the king at the time was gracious enough to allow Frank to wear these three awards or certainly to refer to them. He knew Marconi as a personal friend. Alexander Graham Bell knew him. And uh, he also knew John Logie Baird, the inventor of the, of the TV. Wow. Because <laughs> they were transmitting tele, uh, television signals along high-quality telephone lines in the 1930s. It is now 12 years since this apparatus showed the transmission of outline images to the public for the first time. So he's an absolutely amazing guy. He um, really is. And, and with this book, you have given us all the chance to, to learn so much about him. Um, I mean, this is... A, it's fairly hefty this you must have had to do so much research and, and as I say all the photographs in there I mean well, how long did it take you to write well one of the benefits of lockdown was you, <laughs> you can you can you can start to uh, study and and in March and April and May this year being sort of forcibly combined without without choice <laughs> uh, that's what I applied myself to and uh, just got on with it I'd, I'd done some a lot of research beforehand I gave a talk to the Victorian Society in January on his on his career but between January and when the book was published in uh, a few weeks ago, I managed to find out a lot more information, inc- including the fact that his uh, one of his companies called Creed, which is based in Croydon, manufactured a thing called Enigma with Type X modifications, which was a modification of the German Enigma machine that Alan Turing is so famous for in breaking at Bletchley Park. A uh, RAF wing commander called Wing Commander Lywood invented this device, which had an extra rotor from the original Enigma, 
and Frank's company called Creed perfected it and manufactured 12,000 of them during the Second World War. And this was used exclusively by British and Commonwealth military forces to provide encryption. The, the Enigma machine, you can see that the uh, Germans developed, as on so many films, you push a push like a typewriter key and it come, a light comes on. Creed perfected it so that it came into a teletype and you ended up with like a telex message coming out the side of it. So far more easy to use and far quicker to use. And how and wonderful that we can claim him, quite rightly, as one of our own. Oh, yes. I, th- I think it's, it's fantastic because he, he came back to the island on numerous occasions. He deposited an old photograph of his family, which included Deemster Gill, with the Max Museum. He cherished his, uh, his Max heritage. But when you cannot measure it, when you cannot express it in numbers, your knowledge is of a meagre and unsatisfactory kind. Surely, measurement has been the greatest factor in the development of telephone services. The words of Sir Frank Gill there. What an incredible man. I'm so grateful to Bob Stimson for taking the time to come in and tell me all about Sir Frank Gill. And we do have a copy of his book to give away. Is um, it signed? Do you know it's not? I wonder whether I could get Bob in to sign it before we give it away. Do you know what? I'm sure he will do, actually. I'm sure he would do. Um, I'm going to ask you a question, not for you to answer, H. Can I win? Well, I mean, you could get the answer right. Where was Sir Frank Gill born? Now, if you were listening closely... Thank you. Put your hand down, hand down. Um, If you're listening closely, uh, Bob does mention it at the start of that interview, but you can also listen back as well if you're struggling a little bit. Um, They are hoping to put a plaque there, actually, which I think would be amazing because we all... Like a blue plaque. Yeah, I think we all need to know about this amazing man who was a Manxman and uh, was just so critical in the development of telephone services and also the BBC as well. Absolutely amazing. So where was Frank Gilborn? You can email howardkane at manxradio.com or bethesby at manxradio.com struggle with the spellings just head to the website and you can find us there so this is tamagindis on manx radio with beth and howard and i want to tell you something else now h so there's more there is on breakfast on monday we were playing where's hartley hiding and somebody suggested that ben was actually hiding on the tower of refuge it's not the tower of refuge just so you know um but somebody then also said something about a shop or a stall on the Tower of Refuge selling bits and pieces, which seemed incredible. You wouldn't think there's much passing trade. Well, no, you wouldn't have thought so. But I just happened to be doing an interview with Paul Quine, South Douglas MHK, about a separate matter. He said he'd heard us talking about the Tower of Refuge and he had some information for us. It was a, a small stall um, that was run by two ladies, so I, uh, I, I, I'm led to understand. It was obviously before my time. I... I uh, um, I remember my father talking about it. The um, the one of the ladies was the wife of Bobby Lee, who was a uh, who was a boatman, and um, basically what they would do is, was, as the tide was starting to come in, they'd, they'd row out to the Tower of Refuge and one of the boats from the um, from the steps, uh, either at the the Peveril Jetty or from the, from the Jubilee uh, Clock Steps, and they'd set up a, a, a trestle table with um, pop crisps and I think a, an urn for with hot water to to be able to offer um, cups of tea um, to the visitors who'd row out and the rowing boats to the tower which obviously was a, a magnet for it was the best advertising you could get for uh, for people to take um take take an hour's rowing i bet though you have to be a little bit careful about when you went out there 
You did. Once once the tide had turned, of course, then the opposite applied, so the boats could left, be left high and dry up on the on the rock, which was, uh, you know, having to wait six or seven hours for the for the tide to flood back. To You'd hope that urn was still hot, wouldn't you? <laughs> you, you certainly could. could. So, uh, yeah, you had to... Um, People like my father and uh, Rodney Kennish and Fletcher Christian and people like that who were running the running the boats at the time when when I was a lad, um, would always be very mindful to to make sure that the the visitors um, didn't didn't stray out towards the tower when the tide was going out. Of course, it was a red rag to a bolt because they all you know disregarded what they were told and headed out. So you used to have to go out on the motor launch and and try and sort of coerce them away or, or or before the tide got out too far, try and try and get the boats off a rock. You mentioned your father being on the boats what do you remember about that when you were growing up well i started uh, as a lad um in the late 70s working on um on, on the rowing boats during the summer holidays um and in those days uh, fletcher christian had 43 i think we had 10 bobby lee had 10 so that was um 63 rowing boats that were on the promenade so so this is you know not that long ago really um, and we also had angling boats which would take visitors out fishing so and um, there's a chap called kenny kennish he had a boat called the pisces bobby lee who i just referred to he had one called the silver foam and um, there was uh, stephen carter captain stephen carter as you uh, may well know he had a he had a boat called the hopeful lad and um, fletcher christians was called the rosemary and uh, ours was called the girl mary so there was five boats um working taking taking people out for fishing trips as well they evolved from the old port sodrick um trips uh, which i don't remember that was that was sort of the early 70s um captain carter probably would be uh, far more uh, versed to tell you what what uh, what that entailed but basically they used to take people down on excursions to port sodrick by um, by sea and drop the people off at port sodrick who wanted to go ashore and then go out and, and fish for for a couple of hours pick up the other people and then head back to douglas do you know what you paint such a wonderful picture of that time it's no wonder that people remember it so fondly it was. It was. It was. It was a lovely way to spend a summer. You know. I mean, the, we were we were coming towards the end of, of of mass tourism, sadly. But one of the um, the things I always remember would be sort of in the in the early evening when we'd had a long hot day uh, and we were waiting for the tide to take the boats back up to um, back up into the inner harbour and, and just sort of sitting out in the in the boats and you could hear the sort of the clip clop of the horse trams going along the prom and the, and, and the promenade sort of coming to life and the bustle of people going about their evening business and um, singers tuning up in the hotels because each hotel tended to have a singer on in those days as well so you'd sort of hear a, you know, someone tuning their guitar in the, in the Athol Hotel for instance or, or something like that so yeah it was uh, they were very fun times to think back about A little bit different from looking out on the prom as we sit here on this cold November morning um, How did you then go from that association with boats to planes? Well, I always wanted to be a pilot. I mean, my, my, my ambition was to um, to be a pilot and since I can never remember. I, I just loved aeroplanes. I mean, I, lo- I love boats as well, you know. This, this, maybe I think the two are very strongly interlinked. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, you know, I, I, I yeah, always wanted to be a pilot. That was um, rather than a, than a sea captain. But, I, you know, I mean, it was, I'm very keen on, on um, maritime history, you know, things like the Steam Packet Company. I've written, you know, a lot of articles about them, um, about the old ships and, and and that so and, and also sort of you know um, people um, in and around the town of, of Douglas particularly some um, of the more um, well remembered people like um, Dorsey Cooley who was a, a steam packet landsman uh, and a, a renowned lifesaver whose mon- uh, monument is down in the, in the sunken gardens today. 
Okay, so if there are any moves to bring back a store to the Tower of Refuge, will you be volunteering to sail out to it? Well, I'd certainly help, like to help to set it up, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe we should look at striking up a partnership, huh? <laughs> there you go, it's my new career. I am going to run the stall on the Tower of Refuge. Many thanks to Paul Quine, MHK there. What a great story, who knew? It is a terrific yarn, I must admit. And if I'm passing, I'll pop in for like a cup of sugar or some tea bags or oh, something. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. If I'm, you know, just wandering that way, coming past in my boat. You are listening to Tammy Ginders, of course, here on Mike's Radio with Beth and myself. H, it's one of those programmes where it is literally a magazine programme. It is a magazine where pages could have been ripped out of other magazines and glued in to a different magazine just to sort of make one magazine. It's it's not sort of themed as such. Anything and everything. You've made it really clear there. Do you know, somebody asked me at the weekend, what does it actually mean? What do you actually do? And I think you've really cleared it up. Oh, really well, cleared thank up. You. Thank yeah. you for that. Yeah. Now, listen, uh, last week we uh, we almost have a little challenge. Now, we've got one. We might actually save this one for next week. Okay. Uh, because uh, one I was going to do, but maybe next week we'll do it. You gave me a lava lamp once. I did. As a birthday present, which is very um, it's very cherished and sits on the side and I uh, quite enjoy it. And I was looking the other day something and it said, how to make your own homemade lava lamp with salt, water, oil and food colouring. Oh, fantastic. Let's so do got, that next week. I've got week. all the ingredients, yes. We'll do that next week. Okay, next week is actually the last in the series, oh, gosh, so that would be a nice one to... What a way to finish, if it works. In the meantime, last week, I was showing you the wonders of corn flour and water. Yes, and this was a really odd one. Basically, you, you presented me with this mixture and then told me to punch it. And I did. And it was very strange. When you put a pen in slowly, it so, acts as a liquid. Exactly. When you punch it, it was pretty solid. And you wanted me to tell you why that was. <clears throat> go ahead. Why does ba- cornflour morph into Alex Brindley? Yeah, go on. <laughs> cauliflower, do you say? Why or does no? Why does cornflour behave like that? Well, this mix is again a colloid. So this is a bit like you know miso soup that you get. Um, so yes. you have a, a solid, the cornstarch, which is suspended in a liquid, yeah. which is the water. The molecules of the cornstarch are quite big, and when they're moving slowly, they're able to pass by each other and flow. But when pressure is applied, they come together, making movement more difficult and trapping water in between a few starch molecules. So essentially, um, it's a bit of a phase transition thing, um, and. That's what it is. Yeah, Does that we, make sense? I think that's more or less, yes. I, I knew that off the, the top of my head. Jamming, apparently, it's called, and it's exactly that. It's it, Things can pass by slowly when they're sort of going along, but if they all try to rush at the same time, I think they feel whacking you No, know, Isn't that a metaphor for life? You know what? It could be. It I could be. It could be. Um, what are we going to do? Oh, I tell you, we, haven't had, we haven't had a dip into the archives yet. I literally ran whilst uh, we were listening to Paul talking about the Tower of Refuge there and grabbed something. I think this might be, interestingly commercials from the day. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Do we know what year or was it just a bit of a lucky dip? Um, it was a totally lucky dip. Okay. Let's see if we can identify the year from this. Whether you stood next to the Eiffel Tower in Paris, Sydney Opera House in Australia, or Mickey Mouse in Disneyland, Florida, make sure you've got your ShopRite carrier bag with you, displaying its patriotic three legs of man. Take a picture of you or your loved ones anywhere in the world carrying the bag or a celebrity carrying the bag and could win a £50 ShopRite voucher. Yeah. See a local ShopRite store for full details. So, get shopping and yeah. fly the flag. Carry the bag. I sent a picture up out at the uh, in the outback. Is there another one? Might be another one. Yeah, hang on. If you like surprises, there are plenty in store at Fine Furnishing Summer Promotion. With up to 50% off selected curtains, furnishings and oh. floor stock. 
20%. Remember, these aren't current ads, these are ads from the past. Place for stock lines. You'll be amazed at the savings Which you all can still make. Lurk in be the sure you Radio head to Arcade. fine furnishings. Take off with the best bargains. Sounds like they're ripping curtains. <laughs> right. We'll drop that one out then. That's well, there brilliant. we go. There's an idea. Oh, uh, I want to see some ShopRite bag pictures. That's what I want. I definitely, definitely did one somewhere. Was that before you worked here? No, 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 no. Oh, it right. was, um, I was here and um, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, I remember doing something and it was, um, it was out in the outback. Would you believe? I was out in the outback and I brought it with me and I took a picture of me somewhere like Ayers Rock. Wow, that was nice. Yeah. I didn't win anything. Oh, didn't you? I might not have sent it in, I'm honest. <laughs> but if you did remember, or if you took part in that competition, let us know. Yeah, we'll stick it up on the website and take a look. Uh, we're back for the last one next week, are we? We are. It might be better next week, you never know. <laughs> look after yourselves. Cheerio. <laughs>